I can't get over, um, like every Sunday, I, I have to, it feels like a dream uh, getting to be here with all of you and, uh, you know, some of you more than others, but um, <laughs> it's, it's just a real privilege to be with God's people on his day, worshiping him in an atmosphere of hospitality and kindness and joy. So I think I speak for probably everybody in the room. We're just very grateful to God for all that he's been doing these last few weeks. Um, let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, we come before you and we, we do magnify you and praise you for what we've already had here together this morning with you, the time of, of worship, uh, the time of prayer, the brief time of fellowship beforehand. And now we would ask, Holy Spirit, that um, as we look at, at, at your word, you would own it to the saving and the sanctification of the hearts of all those who hear it. Um, we love you. We, we just entrust these next few minutes to you and ask that you would help us to make the most of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So three weeks ago, um, we started trying to increase in gospel fluency. Um, and the, the way that I, I've framed this is we're, we're moving from a systematic kind of doctrinal approach to understanding the gospel to more of a thematic and narrative approach to understanding the gospel. So we've looked at the story of what's happened with creation, with the fall, with the promise of redemption, and then we've, we began just last week to look at the story of what our response is supposed to be. So we, we kicked off last Sunday in 2 Corinthians 7, and we saw where Paul says, look, there's a couple of kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow which is according to the world that leads to death, and then there's a sorrow which is according to God which leads to actual repentance. Um, so we spent pretty much the whole day talking about what real repentance looks like so that we can differentiate between the sorrow that's according to the world and that which actually leads to salvation. So I came up with six features of genuine repentance. Um, the first one was that in the light of the gospel, we see sin the way God sees sin. Sin looks to us the way it looks to God, not perfectly, but really, we see it like he sees it. And, and so our value and estimation of sin is in line, it's parallel with God's. Second, genuine repentance has sorrow over sin. So you don't think of your sin and, and kind of um, like look forward to it, or you don't plan to sin, or you don't hope for your next opportunity to sin when you're genuinely repentant. But it doesn't mean we don't sin, right? So we see sin the way God sees it. We have sorrow over it. And then third, we are ashamed of sin. Genuine repentance has shame for sin. So when you reflect on your sins, past, present, and, and think about the ones that are probably coming in the future, there's this sense of shame over it because you don't want to do things that are displeasing to God. However, being ashamed does not mean that you just go run and hide under a rock. Because another feature of genuine repentance is that it mounts the witness seat and it confesses with God that that sin is mine, that I did that. 
Confess just means to say the same thing. So we see sin the way God sees it. We have sorrow over it. We're ashamed of it. But we confess it. We say what God says about it. So we have prayers where we say things like, God, I just want to confess to you that I have done X, Y, or Z. And it's not as though God doesn't know that. But there must be something cathartic and healing for us in admitting to the Lord, whether it's in our own minds or with our mouths out loud, that we have done things that we are ashamed of, that we're sorrowful over, and that we see the way he sees them, right? Uh, Fifth, I should have just kept going extemporaneously. Now I'm hamstrung by my own notes. Um, Fifth, we, we saw that genuine repentance hates sin. Now, I tried to be careful, but I went pretty fast. So I may not have been careful enough here to make this point. So I'll remake it briefly. To say that you're sorrowful over something and that you're ashamed of something is not necessarily the same as saying that you hate it. Hating something means you avoid it. Right? So all of us, if we want to be honest, and you don't have to be honest in front of everybody, but all of us can think of somebody who we hate. Right? We avoid. If we saw them at the store, we would like duck down another aisle. So what I'm saying is, when we encounter sin or considerations of sin, that's the hard attitude that we have about it. What I am not saying is, and therefore, we don't sin anymore. The way Paul presents this in Romans 7 is, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So he's basically saying, because evil is present with me, and I hate it, and everywhere I go, it's still there with me, I'm looking forward to the day when ultimately I die so that I'm not around this evil anymore. That's how much we hate it. There's a part of the Christian, even if you're newly married or about to be, that you're like, but death is going to be okay too. Like, I'll be good when that comes. You don't usher it. You don't like speed down the wrong lane on, on the interstate. But you're, you're okay with that moment where you're delivered from the body of death into life and, and no more sin, right? Galatians 5, Paul says, the spirit and the flesh are in contradiction with one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And the way that I said this last week is, I want to be holy and pleasing to God but evil is present with me, so I'm not perfectly holy and pleasing to God. At the same time, when I sin, I don't really enjoy it as much as I used to when I was lost. So either way, I'm not really doing what I want to do. When I'm sinning, I'm not doing what I want to do. When I'm obeying God, I'm not doing it perfectly because I'm usually looking around to see who's noticing. Um, And then sixth, We said that genuine repentance abandons hope in self. And what I want to do here is just say, remember where we started. And I've lost track of time. How many weeks ago it was that we started? I think it was three weeks ago. And this is number four. Is that right? Okay, so three weeks ago, we went to Mark 1.1, and we saw that there was this word there, the gospel, right? And we agreed that just means good news, all right? The first thing Jesus says in Mark 1, 1, is in verse 14 and 15, Mark says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. These are the words of Christ. The time is fulfilled. What do we see in Romans 5? At the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Jesus' first words in Mark are, now that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So these are the two charges that we have as sinners. You want to know what you do to be saved? You repent and you believe. That's it. So the last point that I made last week, the sixth feature of genuine repentance being we give up on ourselves, is is saying, I'm repenting of believing that the wrong things are going to save me and committed to believing that the one thing that can save me will. So am I going to save myself? No. Are others going to save me? No. Is all the treasure in the world going to save me? Is setting up a religious system whereby I can bring God down and put him in my pocket and get him in my debt going to save me? No. What will save me is genuine, heartfelt faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. So the two things we need to do are believe and repent. And today... Today, we're going to look at the, what I call the T-I-O-N words, all right? Um, try, try not to give up on me before I even start, because I know that these things are usually taught like a chemistry class. I've taught them that way before, but I've repented of that now. So I'm going to do my best to present this in a way that, that is actually helpful and useful. All right, the T-I-O-N words are justification, adoption, and sanctification. I'm not going to go systematic and doctrinal, though. We're going to go narrative. So we're going to figure out how these words work into the story of the gospel redeeming sinners so that you can leave here with just a better appreciation for the T-I-O-N words. All right, justification, here comes your definition. But remember, don't give up on me, all right, just because we're doing definitions. Justification is the one-time declaration by God that the sinner is righteous, is just, is not guilty. So which of the negative emotions does justification deal with? Remember, the three that I talked about as a result of the fall are fear, shame, and guilt. Which one does justification deal with? Guilt. Primarily, all of them is the truth, but guilt primarily. Um, do you remember what we said together last week? There was one thing I made everybody repeat after me because we were starting a cult. We said, I'm not a sinner because I sin. Remember that? I sin because I'm a sinner. So when we say, I'm not a sinner because I sin, what we're basically saying is, it, it, is, not what I, it is not what I do that makes me a sinner. And then the second part, I sin because I'm a sinner, is us saying, I sin because of what I am. It's my nature that's the problem. So I just, this is important to me. Uh, If you've ever heard, have you ever heard somebody say justification? Oh, the easy way you remember what justification is, is it's just as if I'd never sinned. You ever heard that? Nobody's ever heard that. I'm the only one that ever heard that. Interesting. All right. Well, there goes my whole sermon. Lee, you want to? Yeah. Uh, it's common in Christian vernacular to take the word justified and turn it into just as if I'd never sinned. But I don't think that that goes far enough because if what we're saying is I'm not a sinner because I sin, but I sin because I am a sinner, then justification must make it just as if I were never a sinner. 
even better. It's not just conduct that God is declaring is righteous. It's your character and your nature that God is declaring is righteous in Christ. That makes me feel a little bit different about how I can deny the urge to sin. Romans 5. Everybody turn there. We're like, oh, good. Finally, we're going to get into the word. <laughs> Ten minutes later. Heretic. Romans five fifteen. So uh, a couple of people have asked, I'll just, I'll commit to uh, one translation going forward. So as long as I'm preaching in these four walls from now on, I will use the English standard version. So if you've got an app and you've got that version, go to the ESV version of your app. If you don't have an English standard Bible, um, don't run out and buy one. Let's wait and kind of see what happens over the coming weeks, right? (laughs) But it's a good one. Romans 5.15 says, The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. Some of you have already tuned out. Verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Let's walk through this together. First, the free gift is not like the trespass. What free gift? Think. Don't speak. Just think. What free gift is Paul talking about? It's not like the trespass. Well, we need to know what it is that he's talking about. I think he's talking about grace abounding to life. That free gift. At the right time. That gift. Right? While we were still helpless, that gift. Jesus on the cross, bruised for our sin, that gift. Jesus in the tomb, dead for my redemption, that gift. Jesus raised again to new life, that gift. So the covenant given in Genesis 3.15, there's going to be the seed of the woman, going to get bruised by the serpent, but then the head of the serpent is going to get crushed by the Redeemer. That's the gift we're talking about. So Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. What trespass is not like the free gift? We know what the gift is, redemption. What's the trespass? Well, there's the original sin, the one that broke everything, remember? And then there's all the sin that you've done. Verse 16 says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for judgment following the sin brought condemnation. What were we in Romans 5 when the time was right? What were we? Helpless. Helpless. Very good. The free gift following many transgressions. So all the sins that all of humanity has, has engaged in for all of history are followed by, so all of that happens, and then comes the free gift. Why was I helpless? Because of all that sin that I added to the heap. All of my own that made me judged as guilty. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the free gift, redemption, bought God's one-time declaration that it's just as if I were never a sinner. That's what he's saying. 
just as if my nature had never been corrupted by the fall, just as if I was Jesus Christ, just as if I were guiltless. So the picture that you should have is of a courtroom and God banging the gavel and saying of you, if you're in Christ, God banging the gavel and saying not guilty. All right, now let's draw a picture, a narrative picture. Um, Imagine a criminal standing before the righteous judge in the courtroom and all of the charges get laid out, everything that this vile criminal has done. And then God, the judge, says because there was a gift, a substitutionary atonement in the person and work of my son, this sinner, you are not guilty. Bang, bangs the gavel, and you're like, I'm acquitted. I did not, there's no way. I am guilty. I know that I'm guilty, right? But God, who's the judge who nobody gets to argue with, just said, no, you're not. You're justified. Now, imagine that were it. And God says, you may now go. So you stand up, and you walk out, and you walk outside, and you look around, and you go, so I'm justified. Now what? My guilt's been dealt with, but now what? And if you're not a Christian, you don't care. You're like, oh, sounds great. But those of us who are in Christ know that while my guilt has been dealt with, and that's wonderful, my shame and my fear still have not been. Because I know in my heart of hearts that what's been said about me may be true because the judge declared it, but I know the truth about myself. I know that I'm gross. I know that I'm not wonderful. So we have to keep going. There's more things that have to get dealt with. So the picture that we need to see is Galatians 4. Go there. And then we're going to come to Romans 8, and then we'll go to 1 John 4. So we're going to remember, this is narrative. We're dealing with themes. You just got declared just, but you know you've still got shame over your sin, and you've got fear over the future, right? Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans eight fifteen says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now you turn to 1 John 4, but listen to me while you're doing, okay? You walk out of the courtroom, and right as you're you're pushing open the door to walk out, the judge, God says, hold on, come back. And you're like, oh, yeah, I knew it was too good to be true. I knew he was going to call me back and change his mind. So you turn around, and you come walking back, and God, the judge who just declared that you are righteous, says, I'm not done with you. I don't want you to go out there and wander in in loneliness and in isolation and in the sorrow of being decapitated from what you were designed for. What were we designed for? Relationship with the Creator. So God declaring me righteous doesn't fix the relationship. So what He says is, come back. I'm going to make you one of my sons or daughters. 
It's not enough for me to say that you're righteous. I want you to be mine. I want you to belong to me. I want you to be in my house, eating my food, driving my car, punching holes in the wall on accident, making messes. God wants us with him. That is so much more than just being told you're not guilty. And so what do we do with this adoption, this spirit being given to us by which we cry out, Daddy. 1 John 4, verse 17 says, By this love is perfect, or sorry, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with what's that word? Punishment. And whoever fears, has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So what does adoption deal with? Which of the negative emotions primarily does adoption deal with? You're either out of the courtroom, you've been declared just, and you're just out there by yourself now and and fearful about what happens next, or you get called back right as you hit the door and God the Father says, I wanna be your father. I want you to be my daughter or my son. Now. What's just been tended? All your fear. Because perfect love, which comes from God in Christ, casts out fear. This is what adoption does. Justification, adoption, we've got one more. God gives you his name, he gives you the inheritance, and then we're going to read together. This will be a learning exercise that we'll do together. Romans 6. And this will be a mess if we're not all in the same version, but it makes it kind of fun, right? We're going to read the first 19 verses of Romans 6 together. And what I want to do is every time we see the words into Christ, in Christ, with him, with Christ, or to God, we're all going to say it together. Now, don't worry, because I'll make it obvious. I will pause when we're supposed to say it together, all right? And this, again, is the English Standard Version. Romans 6, verse 1. Listen. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hold on, we got to talk about that. So you just got declared righteous, and the judge called you back and said, I want you to be my son or my daughter. Are you going to go find other ways to sin? So that he can keep declaring you righteous and keep adopting you? Or are you going to try to be pleasing to your father? That's what Paul's saying. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Back to our exercise. By no means, how can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, which means uh, you cannot just get water sprinkled on you when you get baptized because that's not a picture of burial. That's a picture of getting caught in the rain. (laughs) Baptism means you go all the way under like you were buried and then you come up soaking wet, having been immersed. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 All right. Sorry. Uh, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united 
with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with or brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So this is what the sinner is doing now is he is living a life unto God. What I do now, I do because I've been declared righteous and adopted by my father. So what what I choose to do with my time and my resources, there's always this consciousness in my mind that I'm doing it to him, unto him. All right, we'll keep going. Uh, Yes, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how we think of ourselves once we've believed and repented. We consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign. Thank God. Look right at me. Thank God it doesn't say let not sin remain. We all have remaining sin. But the Bible would call us to make sure it's not on the throne. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So we're in verse 13. Everybody ready? But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought. That wasn't very good, by the way. (laughs) Brought from death to life and your members to God as the instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Think about this. If we were under the law, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll be judged by how well you do that. If we're under that law, guess what we are? Doomed. There's a threat of punishment built into the law, right? If you speed, you get pulled over. If you speed and you're drunk, you get pulled over, they impound your car, and you go to the the clink. If you speed and you're drunk and you hit somebody and you kill them, you go away for a long time. There's always a threat built into the law of punishment. That's not what Paul is talking about. He is saying, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is saying, it's not that you're under the law that changes your conduct. It's the fact that you're under the grace of a father who loves you and chose you and declared you righteous that changes your conduct. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't walk around as believers going, oh, I better not do that or God will hit me. That's not in the scriptures. And this whole idea that people have like that God is this angry old man stomping around, setting stuff on fire in the Old Testament and suddenly became nice in the New Testament is thoroughly inconsistent with the whole covenant of redemption. He loves you. He loves his people. He chose you. We're not under the law. We're under grace and our conduct 
changes. Verse 15, we're almost done. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Uh, By no means. You can't do that. You can't take the grace of God and turn it into licentiousness. 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What is the point of all those 20 verses we just read together? What I am, what I am becoming, and what I will ultimately be is a consequence of my justification and adoption. That's the point. In Christ, with Christ, to God, I am what I am. What are we talking about? We're talking about who you are. Who are you? Are you a child of God? Justified by faith? then it should look like something. Sanctify means set apart or made holy, if you like. Sanctify, set apart, made holy. What I am insinuating here is that Christian behavior flows from identity. This is why my kids, if... if, (laughs) If I could control it, they would all be Christians already and baptized, right? I can't control it. But what Lisa and I have sought to do for the last 15, almost 16 years is not raise our kids in a household where we just want them to conform to a standard of outward behavior. Most childhood beatings come from the fact that mom and dad are angry or you've embarrassed them. I'm trying to raise my children, and I'm failing, amen? (laughs) Trying to raise my children in the freedom of, look, just live your life. You're my kid, and nothing's going to change that. But being my kid means that hopefully you'll begin to understand and comprehend that I'm his kid. And that looks like something. Like, you don't need better behavior. You need a better father. That's what my kids need. A dad who, like, actually loves them. Because I do get embarrassed when they do stupid stuff. I do get irritated. Like, a a lot of spankings were because I just finally got irritated. And had to get up from whatever I was doing and deal with the behavior. And so then there's a certain level of aggression that comes out, right? During the spanking when you're irritated. It's sinful. And then you walk away from those encounters going, that's it. I screwed them up. They're going to have to be in therapy forever. What they need is a good dad. They need a good father. I want them to know my father. I want you to know my father. If God has made you his sons and daughters, how do adopted sons and daughters behave? 
right? You just got cleared of all charges, adopted into God's family. You wait around the courtroom for him to finish up. You go home with him. Beautiful house. Nice place. He's like, whatever's in the fridge is yours. And you go in there and you get something out of the fridge and you drop it and it spills all over the kitchen floor. Is God the Father now going to say, never mind. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. These are brand new floors. Or is God the Father going to say, it's all right. It's all right, we'll clean it up. What's the heart of the Father towards you? And now what do you do the next time you get in the fridge to get something out? You be a little more careful. Because he loves you. And you want to reciprocate that love. Sanctification is not the lifelong process by which you begrudgingly produce something looking like obedience to God, lest he disown you. That is not what sanctification is. Sanctification flows from your identity. You're his. He's yours. You want to be pleasing to him because you're his and he's yours. You're his child. That should look like something. So there's three ways we can look at at sanctification. There's positional sanctification. Everybody's just disconnected. Everybody's like, oh, here we go. Didn't go to seminary. He's got to prove how smart he is. (laughs) Positional sanctification is that initial declaration by God that you're his child. Nothing changes that. You've been moved. You've been separated. Positionally, you're sanctified. Progressive sanctification is that lifelong process by which you begin to look more and more and more and more like Jesus. So positional declaration, God moves you apart. Progressive, lifelong process. So my parents moved away a couple of years ago. Now when they come back, you hear things like, oh my gosh, you've grown. When they lived here, you didn't ever hear that because they saw them all the time. Our sanctification is like that. If you keep checking in the mirror, like, am I better today than I was yesterday? You're you're going to, nope, it looks the same. But if you check over a year, over five years, over 10 years, you find that in spite of your stupidity, in spite of your sin, in spite of your constant falling back into old patterns of life, God is bringing you more and more out of darkness into his light because he's faithful. It's a progress thing. It takes time. And by the time we say goodbye and go through glory's doors and walk on heavenly shores, we will look just like Jesus Christ, which is perfect sanctification. So you've got positional, progressive, and perfect. So let's look at some verses. John 1, 11. This is the gospel of John, verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to look at three, verse, three sets of verses, and then we're going to pray, all right? So if you want to just tune in for a couple of verses at the end, this, that's your warning. John 1 11 says he that's Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God that's positional sanctification look at me so important we are not all God's children we're not those who believe in him are Isn't that what that says? As many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. Positional sanctification. Set apart, you're his child now. Second set of verses is 1 John 3, verse 2. 
This is progressive sanctification, okay? First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And what do we do? Everyone who has this hope, or everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. That's progressive sanctification. I have hope. I have a new name. I'm a son or a daughter. I want to look like I belong in this family that I'm in. So there are things that I say no to that I used to say yes to. There are things that I say yes to that I used to say no to. Listen to me, not perfectly, but really. You do it because you want to do it. He makes us willing, right? Finally, 1 Corinthians 15. This is my favorite one. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I'm doing the waving the arms thing. Like something just happened. Nothing happened. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now your ears should perk up anytime the word of God's like, I'm going to tell you a mystery. You should be like, I get to know something. This is awesome. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. What he's saying is not everybody's going to die. Paul's saying there will still be humans on the face of the planet when Jesus comes back. We're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What that means is if you're standing on this planet when Jesus comes back and you are a believer, you are one of his children, The minute you lay eyes on Jesus, you're going to be changed from the inside out to be a perfect reflection of him. How cool is it for those people? I mean, I'm guessing he's not coming back right away. He might, but we're going to like, we got to go all the way to 80 or all the way to 90 or all the way to 100 or whatever it takes before we get to see him and be just like him, which is when we pass from this life into the life to come, when we walk through that door and see him in that moment will be just like him. That's perfect sanctification. So here's what we have for our gospel fluency list, and with this I'll be done. <coughs> should make sense. All right, everybody should be able to follow me if you've been here. God created, and it was good. God commanded for our good. We sinned and broke everything. God covenanted, promising a redeemer. Jesus came and fulfilled that promise. We are called to embrace him by faith. And repent and believe, right? That's six. Who knows what the number of completion is? This is why I'm a great teacher. Number seven, I'm joking. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are the righteous children of God who will look more and more like what they are day by day by day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.